Amen. Amen. Thank you. Such a blessing to be led in worship and sing and to reflect on those words from Psalm 139 where the, the Word of God tells us that we, God, God knit us together. He formed us in our mother's womb and that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist says, and that we know very well. So we'll praise Him and worship Him for His good works. Well, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll study God's Word together. Pray with me. Father, thank You for today, and thank You for our opportunity to stand before Your perfect, wonderful Word. Lord God, I pray that we would receive this amazing gift that You've given us in Your Word. It was spoken by You, and it was directed and meant for us. And Lord, I pray that today, in this very moment, Lord, that You would prepare every heart, To receive this word, Lord God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and that our minds would be able to comprehend and see the glorious truths that are before us, Lord God. Father, quicken our hearts that we might heed your word today, Lord. This is your word, the God of the universe speaking to us. So, Father, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you will, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 17. As we are studying our way through the Gospel of Luke, we'll finish up chapter 17 today and then we'll take a break from Luke and we will uh, study the book of Ruth on Sunday mornings in August as we focus our attention on uh, marriage and love and relationships. So for the next four Sunday mornings, we'll study the book of Ruth together and then on Monday nights we'll be together for our awakened services, which are sure to be a blessing And we're looking forward to that. Then when we get to September, we'll go back to our normal schedule where we'll have Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and we'll uh, begin work on finishing the book of Luke. Um, Luke chapter 17. If you don't have a copy of uh, Scripture with you, you can find that on page uh, 1206, I believe, 1207 on the Pew Bible in front of you. 1207. I did some research this week. kind of amused myself. I had to finally put it down and set it aside. I can get kind of just like you. I can get caught up chasing rabbits sometimes uh, when I'm researching something. But I don't know if you know this or not, but in uh, the year of 2012, this year that we're in right now, already the world is supposed to have ended at least five times. And we're still going strong. And I uh, started doing a little research about some of these end-of-the-world predictions. And uh, really, there's thousands of them, but there's certain ones that sort of catch on. And so I, I uh, just thought I'd amuse us a little bit with some of the, some of the facts that are uh, being promoted about, by experts about the predictions of the end of the world. Uh, I think the most popular one going right now is the, the Mayan calendar prediction, which uh, really fascinated me as I began to look at the Mayan calendar and how Basically, it's centered around 1,872,000 days in a cycle. And so the cycle is uh, supposed to end. And that would, uh, that would mean that the, the, the world, the earth right now, would be 5,125 years old. Which, you know, they, they're, they're not, that's a pretty, pretty good expectation. They got that right. But let me give you a quote here. It's the time when the largest grand cycle in the Mayan calendar overturns to a new and a new cycle begins. This Mayan expert uh, who teaches archaeology at Colgate University in New York 
says the idea is that time gets renewed and that the world gets renewed all over again. Now, I wonder where he got that idea from. But I wonder if he still has a job. That's what I'm wondering. Because if, if you were employed by a university and you predicted the end of the world based on the Mayan calendar and it came and went, I believe it was in May, and didn't end, then uh, I'm sure he'll have a new prediction next year. But some of the less known ones that have sort of got gained traction... Uh, the second myth I found was the breakaway continents myth. Um, this is going to destroy civilization. Basically, the earth is going to become a death trap, is the quote, and it's as it undergoes a pole shift. So the poles of the earth are going to shift. Basically, breakaway oceans and continents are going to dump cities into the sea. They're going to thrust palm trees to the north and south pole. They're going to spawn earthquakes, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions, and disasters. Again, uh, the process building up to this, according to the experts, has taken millions of years. But as the continents shift, we're all going to be in for doom. And that's supposed to happen uh, again sometime this year. Then there's the galactic alignment prophecy. Uh, the galactic alignment, which will occur for the first time in 26,000 years, and you can just go to Alignment 2012, the website, and they'll tell you everything you want to know. They've got the big countdown going. In this scenario, the path of the sun in the sky would appear to cross, uh, it would cross through what looks to be the midpoint of our galaxy, or the Milky Way. Thank you for uh, letting us know that. Uh, and some fear that this, the lineup, uh, planetary lineup, will somehow expose the Earth to these super powerful uh, uh, sun rays or heat from the sun and unknown galactic forces that will hasten our doom. Others, though, who believe in this prophecy, uh, they say, they, they see this event as, as a positive thing, as one that will herald the dawn of a new era in human consciousness. So I'm really excited about that one coming. So, but it better hurry. We're halfway gone. Uh, the planet X myth is uh, supposed to occur here sometime between now and the end of this year. Um, it's this mysterious planet X that's out there. It's on a collision course with Earth. I think they've made about 75,000 movies about this scenario. Um, and it's going to either collide with Earth or possibly have a very disruptive flyby. But I'm sure we can get some hero from Earth to fly up there and blow it up with a nuclear bomb. But anyway, if you missed that movie and you didn't know what happened. But this Planet X is going to... A direct hit would obviously obliterate Earth, the experts say. Even a near miss, if it even came close, would shower the Earth with deadly asteroids that would uh, just be hurled uh, all across the planet throwing off its uh, gravitational balance. Then there's solar storms. So there's solar storms. Uh, this myth is that the Earth sometime in 2012 is going to be uh, devastated by solar storms. Now, this was new to me. I hadn't heard this one yet. I, I hadn't seen this one in the, in the grocery stores yet, so I had to do some extra checking on it. Uh, in this disaster scenario... It's our own sun that has become the enemy. Uh, I like it because they call it our friendly neighborhood star. Our friendly neighborhood star, the sun, will produce lethal eruptions of solar flares, turning up the heat on earthlings. Now, here's the 
Here's the NASA expert. He says, as it turns out, the sun isn't on schedule anyway. That's my favorite quote of the whole thing. The sun isn't on schedule anyway. Okay, well, I wasn't aware that we had a schedule for the sun, and I think the sun's probably not aware that it's off schedule. But he goes on to say, we expect the cycle uh, probably won't actually peak in 2012. It'll probably be the year following or two years. So everyone has this idea about the world coming to an end. And here's, you know, the interesting thing about that. Why? Why is it that we are continually so fascinated about the end of the world? The first question I want to ask is this. Why do we even have this conversation? Why do we even think the world's going to come to an end? I don't mean us. I mean, why is, why is it that there's always some prophecy about the end of the world? Why is it that humanity seems to be consumed with this issue of the world ending? Why don't we just think it's just going to go on forever? Well, I think the first reason is, is that anyone can see that things clearly are moving in the wrong direction. I mean, we can clearly see that it not just with humanity and its uh, behavior, but, but just as, a, as nature, as a planet, as an existence, we see things are, are not getting better, they're getting worse. And so people, uh, no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, I think you would see that. But mainly, mainly God has put eternity in our hearts. People... All people are created in God's image and all people have eternity in their hearts and all of us have this, this consciousness that there's, there's something missing, that this is not all there is, that there's got to be something more. And so we sort of come up with or entertain all of these crazy uh, ideas about how things are going to end and somebody's always got some wacky idea about how it's going to happen or when it's going to happen. And sadly, uh, a lot of times there are people who represent Christianity who come up with these cockamamie schemes. And, you know, they say that somehow they figured out uh, in the Hebrew language that if you squint your eyes and, you know, drink a lot of coffee and stand on your head and look at it backwards, it's going to show you that the world is going to come to an end on such and such a date. And then people start, you know spreading all of this, and it just sort of makes everything look ridiculous. And in fact, it's, it's just all of this is, is kind of embarrassing, really. It, it, it just, when you stand in the grocery store and you look at the covers of all these uh, newspapers there with all these crazy things on it, you have to remember something. They wouldn't be there if they weren't selling them. Someone's reading them. Millions of people are reading them. And Why? You know, what, what is wrong with us? Why, why is it that we will consume ourselves with such ridiculous things? Aren't there more important questions we ought to be asking? For example, don't you think it would be far more productive to ask the question? We all, everyone in this room, all of us, we all know that one thing is for sure, and that is we're all going to die. So we're all on a limited time. And the older you get, the more conscious you are of the limitations of your time. That's why we say, you know, things like uh, men have midlife crises because they realize that suddenly half their life is over and they, you know, start 
scrambling around trying to do all the things that they think that they haven't had time to do or whatever the case may be. The older we get, the more conscious we are, but the faster time seems to go. That's what I find. I mean, I just think about things like when I was a kid, it seemed like it took forever for Christmas to get here. Now, it's Christmas every time I turn around. I mean, I scratch my head and it's Christmas again. Here we are again. How did this happen? And so time just seems to speed up as we realize, you know, it's, it's just around the corner. There's some, the younger people in our audience today are very time conscious right now. Why is that? Because school is about to start. And you know, when it's the middle of summer and you're just sort of freewheeling and all, but you know what happens is summer sort of comes to an end and school starts to become imminent. Suddenly, kids get real serious about what they're going to spend their time doing. They're like, well, Dad, I only got a couple weeks left, so I've really got to make sure that I... Well, a month ago, I couldn't get you out of bed. Now, all of a sudden, time's so precious. What happened? Well, because they realize that their, their summer is, is moving. I think Job, if you, if you read the book of Job, there's so many hilarious uh, little side notes in the book of Job just seems like Job just identifies uh, so much with those of us who are getting older. Job says in Job chapter 7, my days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and they come to an end without hope. Now that's cheerful. That's good. And two chapters later, Job says, my days are swifter than a runner. They fly away without a glimpse of joy. Job is like, time is gone. You know, that's that's why there's no uh, Job greeting cards because no Hallmark is not interested in any of, any of Job's wisdom. Job's like, man, you blink and it's over. It's gone. You better hurry. So, you know, but I think it would be a profitable thing to have some, some Job greeting cards. I think we need a little wake-up call. We need to know, hey, time's running out. So here's the question we ought to be asking. What are we doing with the time we got left? You see, we're all running out of time. Time's ticking away. The clock's moving. Yesterday's gone. We're not going to get it back. So that Saturday, you can mark it off your... That's one less Saturday you're ever going to have. What did you do with it? And did you utilize it and use it? Because you're not going to get it back. And what happens is, is that what we do is when we feel like we have an unlimited or this vast resource of something, then we have a tendency to be very frivolous with it. But the more conscious we are of the limit of the, of the quantity of something we have, the more careful and cautious we are with it. Now, the thing that ought to astonish us about all of what we've discussed so far this morning is that Christians ought to be very, very different in the way in which they view their time as opposed to those who are not believers, based on what the Bible teaches. Whether it it wouldn't matter if somebody believed in the, the Mayan calendar or Planet X or anything else, a Christian ought to be utterly and completely different in the way in which he or she spends his time or her time. Because the Bible is very clear that we are on a limited time schedule, but the difference is, is that our time is coming to an end and then here and then something else is going to begin. And so there's going to be this mark in history where all of our time here on earth is going to come to an end and we're sort of pointing towards that moment. 
And so our text today is a text dealing with this issue of time. Because it's not a new phenomenon that everyone wants to know. Well, when is the world going to come to an end? When is all this going to end? How is all this going to happen? It's always been this way. People were always asking Jesus these very same questions. And that's exactly what we find in Luke chapter 17. We find Jesus just finishing uh, his instruction about the, the lepers, the ten lepers who were cleansed and the one who came back and was grateful for his cleansing. And so Jesus said, well, your faith has made you well or saved. There was one who was saved. There was ten who was healed. And we saw that the the message of the kingdom, the message of the gospel, is for all people. Because these ten lepers were not just Jewish people. They were Gentile people. The one who was saved was a Samaritan. And so Jesus is is telling stories and using illustrations to teach that it's a universal message, the message of the gospel. And so that leads us to this conversation that picks up in verse 20, when the Pharisees, verse 20, now when he had asked the, he was asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come. Now I want you to know something, that normally when the Pharisees ask Jesus a question, it's a trick question. It's a question that they really don't want to know the answer to. They really just want to stump Jesus, or they want to get Jesus to say something that He ought not say. But here, this isn't really a trick question. This is a question uh, that, that, that they've, they've been anticipating a coming Messiah... Uh, since they've existed. They, they have been waiting for this Messiah to come. It's just that they've got the wrong idea of who this Messiah would be and what he would be like, but they're anticipating it and they really want to know. And they know that Jesus is like one come from God. They know that he has, he can do miracles and he has knowledge that other people don't have. And so they're asking, when is it going to be the end? We really want to know this. Now, what are they really asking? Well, They're really asking, when will the real Messiah come? Because he's going to come like Chuck Norris and knock out the Romans. And then we're going to have freedom and and everything's going to be fine. He's going to fix our political situation and our economic situation. And they're focused on all of the external things that they're facing. So they want to know, when are we going to have freedom? When are we going to be our own people? When is all our trouble going to go away? When are we going to have peace in the land? That's what they are asking Jesus. So Jesus, second half of verse 20, he answers them and says, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Now, we we just got to keep stopping because, listen, there's a lot here. What in the world does this mean? Because it it sounds at, at first glance like Jesus might be contradicting himself. Because remember that previously in the book of Luke, Jesus has scolded the Pharisees for not discerning the times. Remember back in Luke 12. Uh, I'll read this to you. I don't think these will come up on the screen. In Luke 12, he said to the multitudes, whenever you see, he's telling the Pharisees, you see a, a cloud rising out of the west and immediately you say, a shower is coming. And when you see uh, a wind come from the south, you say, well, it's going to be hot weather. You hypocrites, you can discern the faith, face of the sky and of the earth How is it that you do not discern this time? So he scolds them in Luke 12 for not discerning the time. And here he's saying the kingdom of God will not come with observation. What does he mean? Well, what he means is, is that you should be able to discern what's going on around you by seeing what's going on. But if you're looking for an external kingdom, you're looking for the wrong thing. That the kingdom that, that, that is 
coming is an internal kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. The Messiah comes to set up a spiritual kingdom. And when he returns the second time, that's when he will set up an earthly kingdom. Are you with me? And so their external focus is what Jesus is dealing with. He's saying, you ought not pay attention. You ought not pay attention to all these external things, these external personal external indications, you need to look to the inside. He's pointing out their error, not to look at external things. He says in verse 21, nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. Now, really, some of you have a translation that will say the kingdom of God is among you or in the midst of you. When Jesus says it's within you, he doesn't mean within inside you. He means within the group of you. In other words, he means I'm the kingdom of God and I'm standing right here in front of you. It's right here in the midst of you. It's right here before you. You're asking me when the kingdom's coming and you're standing in front of the king. And he's trying to tell him, hey, wake up. Here we are. But they're looking for, they've got in their mind this idea of the way God did things in the Old Testament. They're, they're thinking of the way God freed the people under Pharaoh's rule when he led them out of captivity in Egypt. They're thinking about water turning to blood or locusts coming or frogs or flies or some kind of grand external thing. There's the king standing right there. Now I want you to see something. I want you to see that Jesus answers the Pharisees' question about when the kingdom will come in those two simple verses. He says, don't focus on the external. The kingdom is right before you. It's in proximity right here. Then Jesus turns the tables. He, he changes course. He's done talking to the Pharisees, and in verse 22, now he starts a new conversation with his disciples. So what he said thus far is all he has to say to those who are on the outside. But to his disciples, see, he knows his disciples have questions. He knows that you and I have questions. He knows that, that we want to know when the end is going to come and how it's going to be. I mean, if I announced that I were teaching on the end times next month, we would have huge crowds here. I mean, everyone wants to know that. Every time we teach on the end times, we have tons and tons of people come to hear that. Everyone's interested in the end times. And so Jesus now is going to instruct the disciples in verse 22. He says to his disciples, the days will come when you would desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. That phrase, the the Son of Man, the days of the Son of Man, that comes from the prophecy from Daniel 7. In Daniel chapter 7, here's what that prophecy says. Daniel says, And I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before God. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. You see, Jesus says to us, there will be days when you will desire that prophecy. You ever had those days? Yes, you should. If you're a child of God, you know what those days are? Those are those days when you feel so frustrated. 
You look around you and people mock your belief and, and people are consuming themselves with things that are, that are of, of very little importance. Or you, you're, you're trying to share with your family or loved ones and they simply, you know, look at you like you've lost your mind. They have no interest in anything you have to say and you're just longing. You look at the world. You look at the suffering. This, I, you know, when I long for this, I long for this when I, when I see the suffering that goes on and I, and I look around the world and I just think, Lord, Will you just come? Will you just come? Especially when it's children suffering and hurting and we're going to long, but we won't see it. In other words, there's going to be days we're going to long for, but it's not going to come yet. So Jesus is telling us that there's going to be days when inside you're just going to be dying. You're just going to be saying, I just want to get out of this broken world. But you're going to have to be patient. As James chapter 5 says, Be patient, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and the later rain. And you also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. You see, it's at hand, but it's not here yet. It's already, but not yet. We, we know it's coming. We know that it's already uh, secure, but it's not here yet. And so we're in the midst of, we're in between. And so we're waiting for something that we know is going to come, but it's not here yet. And so what do we do while we wait for what we know will be and what we know is in part now, but we've got this space and we don't know how many days this space is, but God's very specific about what we ought to do and what we need to know about this space in between these times. That's why he says, look at verse 23. And then, and they will say, look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. In other words, there will be those who are always trying to tell you, well, here it is, it's over here, or there it is, it's over there. There will always be people who are false prophets trying to predict something that cannot be predicted. I mean, if there's anything in the Bible that is crystal clear, that you simply could not possibly mess up. In Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends to heaven. So he's there. He's been crucified. He's been risen from the dead. He's there. There's a multitude of witnesses. He's there with his his, uh, disciples. His apostles are there. And he ascends to heaven. And they're standing there looking up into the clouds as he ascends. And all of a sudden, there's two angels standing there. Acts chapter 1. And there's two angels. And what do those angels say? They said, why are you gazing up into the sky? He's coming back. He's coming back. You can bank on that. I mean, that's for sure. You know that. But the time for you to know, uh, it's not for you to know. But He's coming back. But what is for you to know is what are you to do with these times? But don't listen to all these people who are saying, well, look over here, look over there. Don't follow them. Well, but then how will we know? Well, He's going to tell us in verse 24. Here's how you know as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven, shines to the other part under heaven, so also will the Son of Man be in His day. In other words, it will be obvious when Jesus Christ returns. You're not going to be standing around wondering, well, is that the Lord coming back? Trust me, you'll know. The Bible says that when He returns, 
The whole earth is going to know that he's returned. It doesn't matter where you are. It will simultaneously occur on all the face of the earth, all at the same time. It'll be night in some places. It'll be day in some places. It'll be winter in some places. It'll be summer in some places. But it's going to happen all at the same time. And everyone's going to know. And you're not going to wonder. You're not going to be standing in one place, looking out across the horizon, wondering if what you see in the sky over there is the return of Christ. We will all know instantaneously and universally. Verse 25. Watch what the Bible says. But first, before this happens, Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. He's always in loving kindness telling the disciples, listen guys, here's the, all these wonderful things are going to happen. But first, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified. He's telling them what's going to come. He's just like he's telling you and I this morning what's going to come. He's warning us in love. He's saying, here's what's going to happen. Here's how it's going to happen. I want you to know. I'm not a God who who hides in some mysterious maze. I'm a God who reveals myself and wants to be obvious and known. That's why I'm giving you this information. Because I want you to know what's going to happen. I want you to know how are you going to know when it's that time. You'll know. It's okay. You'll know. So he says, I'm going to be rejected by this generation. Verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the son of man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day uh, that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. So even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, what is Jesus saying here? He's telling us that Noah, Genesis chapter 6, Lot, Genesis 19, Lot, the uh, nephew of Abraham... Wonderful story. Read the story. Uh, very, very, just, uh, you know, read it first before you read it with your kids. Uh, it's a little shaky. But a man of God, the New Testament says that, that Lot was a man of faith. Noah, obviously a man of faith, devoted his life to building an ark. When there was no rain, everyone thought he was a lunatic, yet he devoted himself to building this ark. And in those days, everyone did what? They just went about their business, doing the things that they normally did, and just pretended that he wasn't even there, that he wasn't even doing that. They just kind of ignored him. Now, it's interesting that both men lived in these extraordinarily depraved generations. Yet that's not what Jesus mentions. Jesus doesn't say that just in the days of Lot, things were so horrible in Sodom and Gomorrah. Or just in the days of Noah, things were so horrible. He doesn't say that. What he says is, is just like in those days when they were, in fact, horrible, people just went about their mundane day-to-day activities and sort of ignored the imminence of what was going to happen. In other words, it's not that anyone was walking around not realizing that... Noah was constructing a carnival cruise ship out of gopher wood. They could see that. Everyone knew what Noah was doing. But they simply ignored it until Noah got on the ark, the floods came and they were destroyed. When Lot 
left Sodom and was leaving, they, they all knew the situation because two men had just blinded them. Two angels had just blinded the people of Sodom. They knew something was up, but what were they doing? They weren't paying any attention. They were just going about their day-to-day activities. So Jesus is pointing out that when the end comes, the world will be indifferent. The world will be busy doing what the world does. Ignoring the fact that God has said over and over and over, I'm coming back. And when I do, the clock is going to tick out. Time is going to tick out. The gospel will no longer be a viable way for you to find forgiveness. But people will not listen. They'll just go about doing all the things that they want to do. And here's the thing, for you and for me, just that one piece of information, the fact that we will long for the coming of the kingdom, the fact that God has promised over and over that it's coming, that our time is limited, and that when He comes, the world is going to be indifferent. They're just going to be going about their day, doing all the things that they want to do. Why are we not consumed with that? Why? Why Why is there this tendency to cling so tightly to this world that we, 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 we see maybe the, the end of this world as such a terrible thing? I mean, that's a complicated question because it's a complicated answer. I think there's a lot of, uh, of facets that I think that partially it's because we have this utterly uh, uh, wrong idea of what heaven's going to be like. And so we've watched too much TV and, and uh, sung too many songs that make heaven sing just utterly and completely boring. So no one wants to listen to an eternal harp recital. I don't. I don't want to do that. But that's not at all what heaven is. And everything that you do here, every good thing that you love to do here, you'll do a million times better in heaven. It'll be supercharged. Everything that you could enjoy is going to be the way it was meant to be enjoyed. And so if you think that the things of this world are, which there are some amazing things in this world. I mean, the things that we can go and see in nature, the places we can visit, they're phenomenal and unbelievable, but they're tainted. So if you think the Grand Canyon is amazing now, wait until you see the way it was intended to be. Or if you think doing things or experiencing things are phenomenal now, it's not even close to what it one day will be. That everything we have here will have the way it was supposed to be in heaven. And the point is, is that if we recognize that, we would certainly long to be there. And better yet, we won't be gathered in buildings singing songs to a God that we can't see, but we'll be in His presence. We'll be, we'll, we will live in an existence that's illuminated by His very presence. We'll be there in the presence of God. In the presence of God. You see, but the Bible says, and Luke told us back in Luke 12, he said that where your treasure is, there your heart is. So, if our heart's not in eternity then that must mean our treasure is not in eternity. See, because our treasure is going to lead us to our heart. And so the reason that we don't treasure eternity is because our treasure is here. Think about it this way. Think about if, if a person invests uh, their money in a specific company. If you gather up your, your retirement and you've 
invest in such and such a company uh, hoping to get some great reward or some great return on your money. Here's what's going to happen. You are suddenly going to become very in tune to what's going on with that company, aren't you? You're going to know uh, how to find that company on the stock exchange. You're going to you're going to pick up a newspaper, and every time you do, you're going to flip over and see what the stock is at right now. You're going to be totally tuned in to what's going on with the company that prior to investing your money in, you never paid any attention to. Maybe you never heard of it before. You don't know anything about it. You see, maybe the problem is, is that we don't invest our treasure in eternal things. Therefore, we're not, we're not consumed with what's going on with eternity. See, we're just all about what's going on here. Which is, again, why Jesus brings Lot into this conversation. Because isn't that the picture? Look at verse 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife? You see, what happened to Lot's wife? When Lot and his family, his two daughters and his wife were led out of Sodom, and there they are, leaving Sodom, heading up the hillside on the other side of the Jordan, his wife stopped and she turned around. She looked back and she was instantly turned into a pillar of salt. Why did she turn back? See, there are people, there are people, maybe some people in this room today, who can't really imagine a life without your stuff. See, stuff, it becomes such a big part of our lives for, for what reason? We treat it as if we're always going to have it. We treat it as if we, we need it. We treat it as if somehow it's important. And yet, Jesus is instructing us, listen, He knows the tendencies of our heart. He's saying, look, when this day comes... You're not going to be scrambling around trying to to get your stuff. It's not going to matter. Stuff's not going to matter in this day. Remember what happened with Lot's wife. Material possessions are of no use in eternity. But you can, you can use those same material possessions and invest them in eternity now. You see, you can send it on ahead. You, you can invest it in what will matter. You can do things today that will matter for eternity. Or you can just go on buying and selling and building and trading and getting married and eating and drinking and doing all of those things. And so Jesus is lovingly instructing His people. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what you need to know. Here's how you get ready for that. Verse 33 says, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. It's not the first time we've heard this. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. And why is Jesus always bringing this sort of, this this lose your life, save your life into the discussion? Because he realizes we want to cling to this life. We want to live for this life. And he's saying, no, you want to lose this life. You want to live for that life. You don't want to live here. You want to live there. Why? Because what's already is not yet, but it is already. When you become a Christian, your eternal destination is sealed. 
It's, it's secure. In other words, you don't have to fret or worry or wonder, well, what's going to happen to me when I die? Or, or what are, what are all these things going to mean? Or am I going to know? Or am I going to be left behind? Or Jesus is telling you all this. He doesn't want you to stay here and live in fear. He wants you to live in the security of his promise. And he wants you to live according to that promise. He said, don't, don't cling to this stuff. Live for the life that you have before you. See, Paul, Gets this. Every single epistle Paul wrote in the New Testament, every single one of them has mention of the second coming. Paul says in Colossians 3, this is how he puts it. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Now here's my question. He's sitting at the right hand of God. Christ. Who's sitting at the right hand of God? Christ is. Why is he sitting at the right hand of God? Why would Christ, our sacrifice, be sitting at the right hand of God? Well, you'd say, because it's a position of honor. It's a position of prestige. All true. But what's the, why, why isn't he standing at the right hand of God? Because he's done. He's, he's already sacrificed the sacri- all the sacrifice we need. There's no more. He's sitting down. Listen, there's no chairs in the furnishings of the temple. There's no chairs in the Old Testament temple. There's nowhere to sit. There's nowhere for anyone to go in and sit and take a break. The priests would just continually give sacrifice on behalf of the people. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10 says, Every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. That people continue to sin, they continue to sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had who? This man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He's done. He sat down. It's over. You don't have to worry about it, wonder about it, fret about it. If you're saved, it's done. He sat down. Sin is cleansed forever. Live for eternity. It's secure. Maybe it's just unbelief. Amen. So here's how Paul says it in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, he says, But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because by grace we were saved and raised us up together. Now listen to the tense here. He raised, past tense, us up together and made, past tense, us. Where? Sit Together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, according to God's plan, his perspective, you and I today are already seated. There's a seat with your name on it that's waiting for you to come and sit in it. There's no possible way in the in the economy of God that you won't get there, that you'll be late, that you'll miss it, that you won't find your seat. It's there for you. It's secured forever. So why in the world would you live for this world? It's secured, past tense. You've been made to sit together in the heavenly places because He's rich in mercy. Not because you deserved it, not because of anything you've done, but because of His mercy. And so back to Colossians chapter 3, Paul goes on. He says, so set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. For you died. You see, you, you lost this life. You died. Your life is hidden in Christ. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. You see, Paul has got it. He he said, 
hey, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. He wasn't attached to the things of this world. His only desire, his only, the only thing that kept him from just fleeing this world was to accomplish what God had for him to accomplish in this, world, in this life. Why don't we see that? Why don't we live that way? Why are we so busy eating and drinking and building and going and doing as if, well, I mean, I, I believe that Jesus is coming back. But listen, your days are ticking away. They're ticking away. And we have this amazing opportunity before us to invest our lives in what matters most. So where does Jesus go from here in Luke 17, verse 34? He says, I tell you, in that, in that night there will be two men or two people. It's just a masculine form of people like mankind. There'll be two people in one bed or, and one will be taken and the other will be left. There'll be two women who'll be grinding together, grinding their wheat together at the mill and one will be taken and the other left. Two men who will be in the field and one will be taken and the other will be left. In other words, you, you, you don't work in the field at night. You don't grind wheat at night, but you certainly do sleep at night. And so for some people, in, in other words, the Bible is saying, just like the, the, the book of Isaiah prophesies that the, the circle of the earth, 1,500 years before anybody knew that the earth was round, everyone thought it was flat, the Bible's saying, no, it's a circle. The Bible's saying when Jesus comes back, it's going to be night some places, it's going to be day some places. It's telling us, listen, it's going to happen globally all the way around the world, and it's going to happen where it's going to be a divisive event. Everybody's not coming. And why is Jesus saying that to his disciples? Certainly they would have known this by now. Certainly we would know this by now. Jesus is reminding us, listen, not everybody's coming. Not everybody's coming. But some will. Those who are mine will. There'll be people, families will be divided. There'll be people working together. There'll be people who know each other. They're in the same proximity. And one will go and one won't go. According to who, who is... Who is saved and who's not saved? Who is, who is in the kingdom and who's out of the kingdom? Now, some of you will notice that verse 36 is, if you have a newer translation, it may be bracketed in your Bible because some of the, uh, we have thousands and thousands of Greek manuscripts of this text and many of the oldest, uh, manuscripts do not contain verse 36. So that's why it's bracketed or in italics in your scripture. But no need to worry. The, the very same verse is in Matthew chapter 24, verse 40. The exact same verse. The Bible says the exact same thing. And so the issue is, is that we'll be, there'll be separation. There'll be people taken in different directions. And what, do, what does that mean, taken? What is it? Well, in Matthew 24, here's what the Bible says. Use the exact same verb. But as the days of Noah were, so also, verse 37, so also is the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days of the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the days of Noah entered the ark. Verse 39, and did not, they did not know until the flood came and took, same word as in Luke 17, took them all away. Where? So also will be of the coming of the Son of Man. Well, where? Took them, when, and when the floods came in Noah's day, where did it take everyone to? In judgment. God said in judgment. In Genesis chapter 6, that because of the judgment, the flood came. 
So they're going away in judgment. Then he goes on to say, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. The mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. You left where? Left to experience the kingdom that will be established on earth. So there'll be, there's a spiritual kingdom that is being established right now. And how is it being established? One soul at a time. One person at a time. Born again into the kingdom. One gospel message at a time. One at a time. One knock at a door. One hug. One invite to church. One at a time. People come to the kingdom. Verse 37. So they answered. I mean, these are the disciples. They said, where, Lord? They're thinking about this separation. They're thinking about what's going to happen. They're thinking about how there'll be two people, but one will be taken and one will be left. And they're realizing they know why people were taken in the flood. They know what happened to the people of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. They realize that this is judgment. They realize the, the, the intensity of what God is saying here. And so they respond and they say, well, well God, where? And you know the Pharisees are on the outskirts of this conversation, still trying to listen in. Though they, they can't comprehend, you know, especially the prophecy from Daniel 7. They're, they're confused about this longing and exactly what's going on. Jesus said, look, you need to focus on the internal, not the external. But they're listening to this. They said, well, where, Lord? So he said to them, wherever the body is, there the eagles or the vultures will be gathered together. You see, you, you know where the corpses are by looking up at the sky and seeing the vultures circling overhead. The vultures come. I mean, 400 years ago, they translated from the Greek into the English the word as eagle. It means large. It's just a Greek word for a large predatory bird. But we now know that eagles don't eat dead flesh. Vultures do. And they circle overhead. And why are they circling? Because there's death underneath. Because there's separation. From what? From judgment. From why? Because it's always the same. As soon as the preacher gets to this point, but there's something in our heart that wants to go, well, God, that just doesn't seem... Fair. Really? It just doesn't seem loving. It just doesn't seem just. It just... Why? Here is God in the flesh standing on this earth speaking these words that we may know. You see, he's talking about the, the invitation that has been made available because of his sacrifice on the cross. He's standing there saying, you are looking at the, the physical, visible representation of this invitation that's before you to escape the coming judgment. Why won't you hear? Why won't you hear? Why? This is how it's going to be. I'm, I'm coming again. You can bank on it. And if you're mine, there's a seat for you. It's already there. 
And so you don't need to worry about that. You don't need to fret about that. What you need to do is spend your life living for the moment when you get to take that seat. When you get to be there in person. When you get to enter into where you will stay forever and ever and ever and ever. Does that seem... Does that seem kind of crazy? Doesn't it, doesn't it just seem sometimes that like you just you listen to something like this and you just go, you know, those Christians, they, they just live in fantasy land. I mean, they just, I mean, it sounds so, oh, we're going to be in heaven forever and everybody else, no, no, no. That's why the world will just keep going, buying and selling and building and doing because the warning just seems like, I don't know, seems like building a boat when it's never rained. Seems like people around you just think, what are you doing? Why do you believe that? You see, it's true. It's true. And if it seems too good to be true, it's not. It's real. And God said, you can discern the times. You can pick up your Bible just like I did. I picked up my Bible and I decided I was going to read that thing and prove it was wrong. And I kept coming across Statements like the circle of the earth and the prophecy of Isaiah and the fact that God says it's going to be night in some places and day in some places. And I, knowing enough to know that when that was written, that we have, we, have, we have ten times the manuscripts of the book that I'm reading to you this morning than we do any other book on the face of the earth. We are more certain of what the words are in this book and when they were written than we are of any other historical document on the planet. Yet, for some, we're just going to invest our time eating and drinking and marrying and building and doing those things. Listen to me. The Bible says, walk circumspectly. Redeem your time. In other words, think, understand, know, discern. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a scare tactic. It's reality. There they are. Just turn the TV on tonight and watch the massacre that's going on. Right there. Look at the map on ABC News and what's it going to say? Damascus. We call it Libya today. It's the same place. It's still going according to God's plan. But rather than sit around and wonder when the time's going to come, let's focus our attention on what are we doing with the time that we have. Our seat is secure. Are you seated in the heavenly places? Are you? Because He's coming back. You know what the very last words of Jesus are? The end of the Bible. Go all the way to the end of Revelation. What's the last thing Jesus says? I'm coming back. I'm coming back. So we need to say like John, come quickly, Lord. 
may it be today. Let's stand, bow our heads, and close our eyes. Father, today we're so grateful and thankful. Lord, that you give us this day to to hear your word and to be encouraged, Lord God, to be warned, to be instructed. Lord, thank you for being such a loving God. Father, that, Lord, you you tell us what is going to happen. You tell us when you're going to come. You tell us exactly how it's going to happen, Lord, and why it's going to happen and everything we need to know. And you go so far, so over and beyond any of our expectations, Lord God, to give us security and understanding in our position in you, Lord. That those who receive your Son as Savior, those who are in the kingdom where the King dwells in their heart, Lord God, you adopt us as your sons and daughters into your family, secure, Lord. You tell us, You tell us that that you are our good shepherd, that you watch over us and you care for us. And though this world is filled with trials and pains and struggles, the bodies that we live in are just tents. They're not our home. They're temporary dwelling places. That, Lord God, one day, one day, we will stand before you and you will usher us into a world that was, God, meant to be. A world free of sin and suffering, a world free of death and sorrow, a world of peace and joy, a world where you are, God, a world that is beyond any of our wildest dreams, Lord God. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for putting eternity in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. That every man, woman, teenager, child here today it's made in your image, knit together in their mother's womb that you created us. And Lord, sometimes I, I think about the, the ladies in this congregation who stand here right now and they're, they're pregnant. And the very thought that there's a, there's a child growing within them, it seems so unlikely, so improbable, so impossible And yet one day, through much pain and suffering, one day that child will will come forth into this world and there'll be joy in that moment. There'll be life in that moment. And God, in that moment, no one doubts the miracle that just occurred. Father, in the same way, I pray that we would see today that in the trials and the sufferings of this time, the birth pains as we wait upon you, are one day going to give forth life like we cannot imagine. Father, I pray that you give us faith, faith to live our lives for eternal purposes, Lord. Now, God, will you do what only you can do? Will you call men and women to yourself, Lord? Call broken hearts to you. Call lives who want to come home Call sons and daughters into your family, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.